Welcome to the IBM Developer Podcast. I'm Grant Starnfeld, and my co-host is Luke Schanz. This is the second part in our three-part series about Cabanero. I believe this is going to give us the perspective from the developer's point of view. Is that correct, Luke? Yes, it is. And to teach us about this, I went and found Erin Schnabel, and she's really uniquely positioned to teach us about this subject. She's a senior technical staff member, developer advocate for Bring at IBM, and here's the real kicker. She's been using containerization and developer workflows for like seven years. So you're really going to be hard-pressed to find someone with more experience and knowledge on the subject. And as we'll hear, all these years of experience are represented in the Caballero and AppCity projects and in the value they bring to the developer. Wow, fabulous. Excellent. Uh, let's get further into that. My name is Erin, and my last name is Schnabel. There's a funny story about that. Schnabel is beak in German, and a Schnabel tier is a platypus. Really? So we have a family totem animal. We have a platypus. We have it at our house. Let me ask you this. Sure. Java developers. Yeah. What is the landscape like today? What is going on? Because I think there's a lot of misconceptions. We had that whole time period, actually, when we were working on Liberty, which when that came out, that was all, let's take people who are getting really mad and they're still using Java, but all the app servers at the time were really slow. And so we made Liberty to be light and fast and tiny to make developing Java applications more fun. So now it's like you take that and you fast forward and now people are still, in some cases, writing those traditional style apps. And then they're looking at this mountainous avalanche, like new technology crazy and being like, I don't even know what any of that is. And it's weird because there's a spectrum. So you've got still people who are just in their little space writing their web apps. You have people who have been writing web apps and using Cloud Foundry which at least puts them cloudish places. And now we're talking about Kubernetes, and that brings a whole bunch more operational awareness. But sometimes the concepts are not as foreign. People have been now introduced to them for a little while. But it can still be difficult to get them right and to maintain their correctness over time, especially as people change what they want their platform, like from a bigger picture. We have a big organization. We want our cluster to behave X, Y, Z ways. We have 100 teams. How are we going to get those 100 teams to do what we need them to do correctly? Right? So there's just conventional things that change, and that's what can be difficult. So in addition to people who don't know or have new skills to build, you also still just have currency, consistency, like all these other concerns that the Java developer might not understand. And I can see how, especially if you look at something like the cloud-native computing foundation landscape, it's daunting. It's huge. It's huge. It's huge. So, we, so I'm not always really good with making charts because I would much rather be writing code. But when we were coming out with Cabanero and Appsity and all those things, I made one that actually everybody liked. And I was like, yes, I win. But it broke that into four categories. So it was like trying to show all the complexity that people are having to deal with, all the stuff that they have to learn now and the fact that it's not like one area of things right it's like you've got the whole change to how you were going to write your applications to begin with because the environment they're running in is different and then you've got the whole every microservice is supposed to use the tool right tool for the job and you've got 80 million thousand tools and I don't mean tools like build tools. I mean like Mongo versus Cloudant versus, I mean like just databases. Do you use a NoSQL database or an SQL database or a graph? Like 
boom, like your brain just exploded. And then there's all the DevOps choices. And then there's like configuration management and your Kubernetes environment choices or, or, or heaven forbid you use Mesos. That's a bad joke, but it's not a single one dimensional problem. You've got like this cross section of stuff coming at your face. It's a lot to learn. So what are we doing to, to fix that? Or how are we approaching this to streamline it, to make it accessible? There's a couple different levels that we are introducing. The one that I like the best, and it's because it maps to my internal development model, what I've been doing to work with teams, mostly because I do freeform creative work. And so what ends up happening is I have to write something and then I have to let some other people work on it for like a period of time, which means it's like a random person coming through and I don't want them to have to go through the 80 step process to set up all the pieces. You know, I want them to just be able to do their thing and move on. And so for that, this is like maybe seven years going now, I've been using containers of some form or another, I guess not seven years in the work, but some of my repos are that old. So it's like, I would give them the container that would build whatever it is they needed to build. So that way they didn't have to set up all the right tools or whatever. They could just use the container to build the thing. And I made the script that would do that in the right order. So they, all they had to do is make the code change and to run my script, which would use the container and do the thing. It's so cool that you chose to do that seven years ago no because kidding, now right? you're you know, I'm like, this is the right thing. Like it yeah. works. It works. And it's, it's like if I would have bought Bitcoin that one time when I was <laughs> reading about it. Exactly. <laughs> but it, it it's, it's like, I understand that that model works because I've been using it. So I've been working on Absidy, working with the spring stack specifically. And what that means is as the stack maintainer, and I could put myself either as a team lead or as an organizational lead or as someone that's just, in my case, I'm just passionate about Spring in a cloud native environment. And I can say, well, I'm the stack maintainer for AppCity. So I'm doing the generic case. I'm going to tell you what I think is the right thing to do. So in my stack, I can say, well, you're running Spring. We're using this for microservices. Therefore, I'm turning on Actuator. I'm going to turn on the, which brings in a health endpoint and a metrics endpoint. And I'm going to turn on Prometheus, the Prometheus module so that there's a Prometheus endpoint that can be scraped to get the metrics data out. I did that for you. You don't have to worry about it. It all just happens. I have a preference, and it's funny, in a Spring app, I actually define a simple liveness endpoint because I just want something that says, I'm not a zombie. I'm not a zombie. I'm not a zombie. Because in my view, the liveness endpoint should be brain dead simple and your health endpoint should be doing the interesting things and you don't have to do the interesting things twice. So I put that in the, the Spring application. And I can make sure that the Maven builds work the way I think that they should work. I can make sure that you're pulling from the latest Spring Boot version 2 release. I can make sure that Jaeger tracing is turned on of a reasonable library level. I haven't gone to the nerdy extent of setting up code formatting requirements because that's really like you can just start wars with that. And I don't need to do that in the community stack, but I totally could. So it's stuff like that where I'm setting up what the best practices are. If I was a team lead or on one of the projects I have, it's just me messing around with my friends, we've got five services. So I could still, just within that small context, use a stack to set up all five of those projects. And then if I had to add a sixth one, well, I got all my conventions and I just make the sixth one and it looks like all the other ones. And if I then update the stack, all of those projects get updated and it's like, that was easy. Easy yeah, is awesome. And what's so cool is that you are perfectly positioned for the environment we're in right now, having gone through that and been using containers. So let me ask you this. Because you're so well positioned to think about this, to view the landscape, 
what are the challenges that Java developers are going to have in adopting containers, cloud native, and Kubernetes? Well, it's interesting. So we've got a set of developers who have never looked at any of this. And so you want them to be able to choose an answer without having to learn everything first. So in this case, you just pick up my spring stack and you've got the endpoints and you have to think about that just happened. There's another angle to this because cloud native isn't new anymore. And we've had Cloud Foundry in the mix for a while. And in the case of Spring, they have Spring Cloud recommended libraries. But there's some interesting caveats in even that case, which is my company's moving to Kubernetes instead of Cloud Foundry. Okay, so that's different deployment metadata and they might not know that. There's issues with some of the Netflix stack is basically stabilizing or being, it's being retired. Which means if I was writing a Spring application and I'm used to using some of those libraries, well, they're not there anymore. So what do I do instead? Stack and just answer that question for you. You don't have to do that. Even in the case, like, you have people that, are, that have not made any move to cloud at all. And then you have people that have kind of half-started and there's still changes. And so you still have the case where I can say, for my team or my organization or my environment, here's what we're going to do. And that's what I think is really awesome. Yeah, it is awesome. And what I love about it is that it's good for the business, but it's also good, good for the, for the dev- humans. Yeah. So I was showing, I have a thing. I wrote the spring stack and it uses Maven, but really Maven makes me vomit on the inside. I don't like it. It's the thing. Everybody uses it, but it's just, it's really a lot of XML, which is just ugly. What's cool is I put most of that ugly XML now in the stack. So there's a parent palm in there. And the parent palm has all of the XML, which means my project, the one that I care about, is like teeny. It's just like all the noise is just gone, which is way awesome. <laughs> it's just easier than to, for me to understand what I'm doing. It's my business and not just, you know, some random plugin configuration that I have to have that I otherwise I'm not going to change. So I like that too. It's just cleaner. It's fun to think about because obviously the reality is, you know, all the clouds have adopted Kubernetes and this, this is the way of the world. So how do we get our teams adopting it and using it? And the answer is, well, make it make their life better. There's a whole different angle to this, too, at least in, from my background. So when we were working on Liberty, we were changing a lot of the processes and development practices within our organization. And we had cases where we wanted people to be more consistent or we needed to make sure that they followed certain steps in the process. That what we learned was if you made the tool do something of value to the developer, it was much easier to get them to comply. <laughs> it was like, so we wrote some tools that would help, it would just remove work from them, which meant they were inclined to use it. There was benefit to them, and then that also benefited the overall process and made it easier to follow the rules. Spring, to some extent, has done that for a long time. That's why Spring Boot works so well when you're on the golden path. It's like you just follow the conventions and you stay on the golden path, and they do a lot of stuff for you, and magic ensues. And that brings benefits, so therefore people do that, and everybody wins. So I just actually, I was talking with Mary Gergleski and Hugh Key from Lightbend, and they were giving me some background on reactive systems and reactive programming. And it was interesting how it all sounded so familiar from like a philosophical and problem-solving standpoint, you know, sort of abstracting out the, the specifics of what, what the tech is and just these ideas of, you know, like what I'm used to now with Kubernetes, it being declarative and resilient. And it's like, oh, that's what a reactive system is. <laughs> this is... <laughs> There's nothing new in software. Nothing new in software. Well, we've been doing 
the tug of war between what's in the app and what's in the infrastructure. This the talk I want to give at some conference someday. I have to sit down and write it. Everything I needed to know in computing I learned on the mainframe. How we do it is different. The technologies we're based on are different. But really, we solved all these problems in the 70s. It's <laughs> funny. I, uh, when I talked to Matthew Cousins, that was actually the first interview I d uh, did with Justin Halsall. And that's what he said. He was like, it's a little frustrating to see these blog posts about this being this new technology or new idea. And he's like, yeah, we've had the virtualization. <laughs> we've had the like streaming encryption. We've that's had right. the you know, identity management and all of this. Yeah, it is fascinating. So something you had mentioned earlier, you were talking about stacks. So I, mm -hmm. I sort of want to reprise it because when we look at this complicated landscape of choices, this is now part of that solution. Grouping things into stacks or packs that solve common use cases and problems so that it takes a lot of that decision-making and we can zip right this to... This is the tension. When I first started talking to people about cloud-native and microservices, this was years ago, the real promise of that architecture is that you're, again, you're taking your big monolith and you're breaking it into pieces that are much more custom. They're the right size. They use the right tech, right? They're much more fit for purpose. And so then you have a tension between it's just too many choices, right? And you have to find sanity somehow. And so the general recommendation is don't allow your developers to use every language under the sun. Pick four and then maybe add over time. Most shops that have Java in them, Java is an easiest, an easy first choice, but because they have web front ends, they probably also have Node and JavaScript, but they might have conventions. So for our front end, most of you are going to use Angular because that's what we picked. And you can make an AppCity stack that would have a template that would bring in, here's this version of Node that you're going to use to build your application, and it's going to use this version of Angular. That's our standard. That's what you're going to do for a web app. That's, I'm just picking some things, but at least I've made a narrow boundary. And even with that, from a template perspective, when I'm getting people started, I can say, here's the conventions that you should follow within that app. In the case of the spring stack, I can add additional required tests that have to run. I can define additional jars that have to be included. Let's say we have a security library that is the corporate policy that everybody has to use. And I, I've talked to customers and actually at conferences, I've talked to people from other companies and that's <laughs> a couple of years ago, there was one guy that was his job was to go make sure that all of the applications that were deployed in their environment were using their security libraries because they, it was just required that they built their library to make sure all the right stuff happened. And so then they had to make sure that all of the applications were using those libraries. And that's something this, uh, that uh, an AppCity stack can just do built in. It's so interesting, and not that I've had experience with this personally, but thinking back to designing infrastructure in my software days, it was the same thing. Everybody was essentially redoing all of the same work over and over and over, using the same interfaces and the same tools, and the only thing different we were doing was really some subtle configuration differences, but everybody was using load balancers. Everybody was figuring out some sort of disaster recovery or monitoring uh, and the tools were there, but it's just, it's still a lot of work to use all those tools. Like I've been talking to the Quarkus team, because Quarkus, of course, is a really new thing. And, and we just watched another Quarkus talk, actually. And one of the points they were making was that with Quarkus being so new, there's some issues sometimes with people understanding how to build it or having the right tools to build it, or if there's some changes in behavior and like the order you have to do things to get things compiled the way you need them to be. So if we used an AppCity stack for that, we can tell people, here's where you put your code, 
And that means those of us who are really interested in making Quarkus work well, or in my case, making the spring stack work well, we can groom that path for you. And then all you have to do is absolutely run, absolutely test, absolutely debug, absolutely build, and everything happens properly or in the most optimal way according to what we want it to do. So I was going to ask you how it was done, but I think you just told me. I think you just <laughs> recited the commands. I did. <laughs> I did. Yeah. So it's, it's build, run, deploy. Those are that's Actually, the, the build is a different step. So I can do an init first if I want to start with a template. So that gives me my new skeleton of a project that's going to use the AppC stack. Then I can either run or test or debug. And those all implicitly do a compile because they get to that next stage. So if I do a run, it does a compile and then it runs in the foreground. And so if I'm coding, it'll keep updating and noticing my changes and it'll refresh. And all of the languages, all of the stacks do that. They do that in their own way, but the stack does that. So for me, from a command line perspective, my fingers are always typing the same thing and I don't have to learn how to do that in Python. It just works. It's the same if I want to run tests. There's some differences in stack behavior at the moment for tests that we're sorting out. Like it'll just come out as we want. Because some of the stacks will do also like continuous change detection for tests. So if you change your tests, it'll rerun all of them. And some of them just run the tests and exit. So it's not like it's a significant difference. It's just, are we in a continuous model or not? And how do we decide which way we want to be? And then all of them also provide a debug mode. So I can just do absolutely run, absolutely test, absolutely debug, and... It doesn't matter what language I'm working with. It just does the magic things. In the case of the Java stacks, we've specifically made some choices so that your Maven artifacts, even when you're using Gradle, it tends to be Maven artifacts, that you're reusing your local caches. So if I'm working on a bunch of... Like my, on my laptop, the Maven cache was like 1.2 gigs. Like, they get big. And I don't want to redo that for every little AppCity project because that just adds up. And so we've deliberately made some choices so that it reuses my local cache, which also has the side benefit that any other plugin that I might introduce to my stack, the regular Maven commands work too, right? So it's like you have the AppC commands that can help teammates that aren't as familiar or whatever, they can use those, but the regular Maven ones will work as well. So, so in a workflow for a developer, how does AppCity fit in with the collection of tools? So AppCity works with the two-stage build process and it is containers based so i've got a docker container that contains my stack and that stack will build a final image that's just what's needed for runtime so it doesn't have any extras in it doesn't have any tools in it or anything it's just that minimal image as the stack maintainer i can define the base image for both of those stages so if i have a corporate image that i'm required to use i can put that in the final image specification in that docker file and as the final image is ready to be pushed out to my system then i've enforced everybody's on the right level that's good so there is an absolute build command and it does the i'm going to do this build i'm going to make that final image so progressive disclosure kind of thing going on if i don't know anything about containers i don't have to do that I'm a nerd. I know all about containers. I want to see what it looks like. I want to be able to play with it and make sure it does what I want it to do. And I can still do that. I can use AppCity Build and I'll get that final container out and I can poke it with a stick, make sure it's okay. The deploy command that AppCity has, right now we have it integrated with Tecton pipelines. So when you use AppCity Deploy, it's going to try to get it out to Kubernetes, maybe using a Tecton pipeline, but it'll do the, the push to get it into Kubernetes. That portion is kind of optional. Like I don't have to use that deploy command, but the fact that all of those other commands exist 
that means I can use any CICD system from a pure APSD standpoint. I can use any CICD system and have fewer variations. So if I'm supporting lots of languages in my environment, I don't have to have special unique behaviors in all of my builds because Python has to do something totally different than Node has to do something. To I could make a much more generic system that's based on the AppCD CLI because the stack does all the weird stuff, weird, you know, customized stuff, whatever. And that, that can really simplify your operations because I'm telling you, the most direct commits to master... <laughs> I've ever seen. It's trying to fix your Jenkins file or your Travis file or whatever. It's like you're you're just trying to get your build to work right. So you're bypassing like all of your whatever's because you're just trying to get that thing to work. So I see a lot of value just in that in being able to say I'm going to be able to take my CI/CD systems and it could be Tecton tasks, which can now be more generic and shareable, but it could be a Jenkins file or a Travis file or a Circle CI or pick a thing, and I can have more reusable pipelines because they can be less specific because the stack can be specific which is just good it's just nice it is really neat and it, it's unifying so many things that had a similar philosophy but were siloed by their disciplines and we had things like devops that were bringing things together but now we can actually have our whole architecture and application framework and this whole well it's it's DevOps. again like reducing the number of people who have to be experts it's not that other people can't become experts, but like every team does not have to have an expert in writing a Tecton task or a Jenkins file or a Travis file. Every team doesn't have to do that if they can use the AppCity commands. If you have that more generic Jenkins file or the more, you know, the more generic tasks that apply to more projects, you have fewer people that really have to make sure that those work well because they can deal with all of the projects and you know, it's just much easier to reuse that, which means fewer people have to mess with it. What additional technology should enterprise developers look at in addition to AppCity to help solve some of these problems? So from an enterprise developer in the, in the developer role, you're looking at a couple things. So AppCity makes my development lifecycle better. It means even if I'm just working in my team, we can impose our own conventions even. Like that's nice consistency. And then you're going to want to see how your changes get into production, what your processes are going to be, things like Tecton, but as a developer, we have to decide, am I going to be writing the Tecton tasks or am I going to be using something like an AppCity Deploy or, or some other CI/CD pipeline that's going to hide that or do more of that work for me? So I just have to look at the results and make determinations. And I think with developers, you have people who have varying levels of interest, how much GORP they want to deal with in the middle and how much they're okay with being magic. I personally want to see all the GORP in the middle. I don't like not seeing it, but I know that I'm not, you know, I know not everybody is that way. How could a developer get started working with AppCity and getting this tool set up for themselves? AppCity is on GitHub and it also has a website, appcity.dev. So you can look at that. There's instructions to download the latest release. There's a homebrew recipe. And so you can just get AppCity, the CLI running locally. There's a default set of repositories that we have and maintain the spring stack, for example, that I provide, which means you can just initialize a new AppSy project based on the templates that I've built. So you can come and tell me, I don't know what I'm talking about. That's great. You just download that, create your project. You can work with the commands as normally as you'd like. There's good integrations with IDs, with CodeWind. 
but you don't have to. You know what I mean? Like it's it's just it's a very natural feeling development flow. So how far you go beyond is is up to you. But that flow with Absidy, integrating it into your IDE if you want to. Codewind is nice to do that. Brings Dockerized development right into your IDE. So it feels like developing with Maven before, where you just have your little terminal window right in the IDE with helpful sidebars that help you understand what you're stopping and starting and all that stuff. So with Absidy, you're using containers, and then Codewind brings that right back into the IDE, so it feels the same. You're using some different things, but it feels the same. It feels very familiar. I think when you're getting to the deploy step, if you're playing with Apsi, then you have options for how much you want to try to run locally. So if you're curious and you want to set up Minikube and you want to set up Tekton, Apsi will still take care of that deployment process. You don't have to touch it too much. That's the kind of thing where we don't install that dependency for you to mess around with locally. But if you just install it, then we can show you how that works to deploy it there. What is Cabanero? Cabanero is another open source project that brings together several of the technologies I've mentioned. So it brings together Tekton and Codewind and Apsidy and another technology called Razi, which I'm not going to talk about because that's a whole level over and above of deployment crazy. It's great, but it's like the next level of deployment crazy. And it tries to bring those in in a unified way. As an individual developer on my laptop, like on my computer, what I'm doing, my interface with Cabanero is still what projects, what repositories do I have, what stacks am I working with? That's like my biggest interface through to Cabanero is what is the stack choice, stack maintenance, right? That's what influences my day-to-day life. Cabanero helps define also some recommended tool chains, like there's some stuff out of the box to make the entire end-to-end flow work really well. And that comes down to some of the generic behavior I was mentioning earlier. So we have predefined stacks in Cabanero, which we expect people to customize, right? But we're giving you some out of the box at the Cabanero level that work with AppSD applications to get those deployed into Kubernetes in a nice standard managed way. From a development perspective, in my day-to-day, I don't directly use those. That's just triggered magic, right? So I don't have to install those, but... It makes setting up the environment that I have to work in much easier. It makes it more consistent. Absidy and the whole combination in Cabanero, it imposes consistency, but in a way that provides benefit to me, so I don't mind. It's making my life easier, and it's making things more consistent, so everybody's winning. <laughs> it's part of everybody's. And that makes things a lot easier over time. Do you have any thoughts on app modernization and cloud migration in a hybrid multi-cloud world? But it is never easy. There's lots of technologies to try to help people understand what's in their applications, to understand what options they have for where they should run them. But some of the things I think are the most important, this is just Aaron's opinion, is actually cultural. People, it's people and people culture. And understanding ahead of attempting to migrate the code or the servers or the tech, what benefits you're trying to get out of that process so that your approach is aligned discourse in the industry has improved in this space, which is good. Because I think we see a little less often the, oh, well, microservices are the thing now, so I'm just going to take my big monolith and bust it into a million pieces. It's like people are over that, which is good. But it always wants to be intentional with your modernization efforts. The first time you do this, you're going to get it wrong because you just will. Like there's just all kinds of things you have to learn and things you have to try and processes you have to evolve. You're going to get it wrong. And that's what I don't 
see us always talking about from a modernization perspective is how do you tolerate mistakes? Because the whole part of cloud native is you have all these little pieces that evolve independently, which means you have to really change your thinking about how you build these pieces. You let them evolve separately. You let them fail. Like the whole thing is here, throw the spaghetti against the wall. You want control over that. You don't want it to be chaos, but you have to free up these pieces. Or why are you incurring the cost? Like, why are you modernizing things if you're not going to free it up to get the benefit? And, that's, and I just think that part of the dialogue doesn't always happen up front. Well, like when I'm hearing how people are thinking about that, there's a f- over-focus on the tools. The tools help, no question. The tools help. But there's a whole culture expectation goal-setting process that you really need to do to have modernization be successful. Wow, thank you. That was that was a great answer. You're asking people with different roles and different perspectives and finding these these little nuggets of wisdom. Well, everybody, to- like, we're nerds. Everybody loves to talk about their tools and their tech and their, like, it. but it's always, I mean, what did I talk about with Appsity, right? It's tech. I'm really, really excited about it. having my hands and code and writing stuff that makes things easier. Like, it's part of what we're passionate about. But when you're looking at it, a modernization story, you can break your big monolith into microservices. But if you're still doing water scrum fall, you haven't really improved anything. You're not getting the benefits of being more agile or getting to market faster or being able to pivot faster if you're still deploying all of your little microservices in lockstep at the same time. You have the same situation you had with your monolith with more pieces. You just made a more snarly ball. And now you're trying to still deploy it all at the same time. Like, it makes no sense. Like playing a song with all the notes are right, but there's no soul in it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I like to see people look at their existing applications and be deliberate about how, when, and what to modernize. Do the part that's causing the most pain first. If there's a part of the business that needs to move faster, how do you focus right on that part that's faster and make it so that the end result of your changes to your process and their changes to your culture and then whatever tools help make that transition easier so that you get what you wanted out of it so that that part of the business is now free and then you do the next one. What's your tech origin story? What started it off for you? What set you down this path in life? So when I was seven... I think it's seven or eight, something in there. My dad brought home a computer from work. I don't even remember why he brought that one home. It was two five and a quarter floppies. And it was a little flip-up monitor that had like, you know, three lines. So we took that off. But then we got a monochrome monitor to sit on top. Somehow after that, we got 8-bit color. <laughs> and then somehow I got a King's Quest game from somewhere. I don't remember. I learned to type playing King's Quest is what happened. And as we got, like, we went from that one to a 386 to a 486. To, I was the one that put the modems in. I was the one that told my mom how to use her mail and how to where the files were. And I totally formatted the C drive without a slash sys on the end. Whoops, I bricked my machine. I had to go fix it. It was embarrassing. I was 10. <laughs> it was like, and BBSs were a thing. Oh, yeah. Totally. Nice. That's a fantastic backstory. Thank you for sharing. Luke, you know, Erin does bring so much insight and experience to the Cabanero and Apsidy projects. So to get started with Apsidy, I'd recommend you check out apsidy.dev. That's A-P-P-S-O-D-Y dot D-E-V. If you're looking for the IDE plugins from Codewind, go to www.eclipse.org forward slash Codewind. And of course, the Umbrella project that houses both the Apsidy and Codewind elements go to cabanero.io 
That's K-A-B-A-N-E-R-O dot I-O. And if you'd like to keep up with Erin's work, you can follow her on Twitter at EbullientWorks. E-B-U-L-L-I-E-N-T-W-O-R-K-S. Your hosts can be found at Luke Schantz, and my Twitter handle is G Steinfeld. If you want to keep up with our future podcasts, please subscribe and share with a friend or colleague who might find this also useful. You'll find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Thank you very much for joining us on the IBM Developer Podcast. Have a great day. 